0: hey folks and welcome back to the theopolis podcast i'm your host brian motes and i'm the content manager at theopolis institute we at theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church participants in our programs learn to read the bible imaginatively worship god faithfully and engage the culture intelligently in this episode we are continuing our friday series with james jordan and the book of romans as always please take a look at those links down there in the show notes for upcoming events and where to find us online We'd also love for you to join us over on the Theopolis app, where you can find a lot of our media, which we are updating every week. And most recently, we have our 2022 Theopolitan Ministry Conference in its entirety. I shouldn't have been funny
1: because we're at a real serious part of Romans here. Romans 2 and 3. And this won't be quite as thrilling a part of Romans to consider, but we will talk about the law a little bit, I think. Paul started out in chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 and he says everybody's depraved. Everybody's rebelled against God. God gives them all this revelation and everybody rebels against it. Adam and Eve did and now everybody does. And they become idolaters. And then they become homosexuals in their tendencies. Then they just become just rotten doing all kinds of rotten, filthy things. Now... We have to understand that when the book of Romans was written, when the Jews heard that, they said, yep, that's what those Gentiles are like. And we Jews, we're sinners all right, but we have the covenant. And in the covenant, God is kind of more gracious to us than He is to the Gentiles. And God overlooks our sins. God is nice to us, and that's what it means to be in the covenant and not be a filthy Gentile. And so, their interpretation was that the call of God to be a Hebrew Israelite Jew, the covenant of circumcision and all the special things in the law, was a sign that they were closer to God and that they were saved and that other people weren't saved. And that is not what Israel was about. Circumcision was not a sign of salvation, first and foremost. Well, in a sense, first and foremost, it is, but specifically it's not. And the special qualities that are in the law of God did not have to do with salvation. What did they have to do with? They had to do with Israel's particular mission in the world to be a priest to all the other nations. God saved people in all the other nations. There are saved Gentiles all over the Old Testament. Melchizedek, Jethro... All of the city of Nineveh, several million people in Jonah's day. All the Egyptians in Joseph's day. Hiram of Tyre and all of his people. Apparently, some of the Syrians under Ben-Hadad in the days of Elijah and Elisha. The Bible calls these people God-fearers, and there's lots of them in the New Testament, but the Psalms refers to them as well. O you house of Aaron, praise the Lord. O you house of Israel, praise the Lord. O you who fear God, praise the Lord. Numbers chapter 15 has rules as to how an uncircumcised God-fearer can come and offer sacrifice. So the special privilege of Israel was not related to a special generosity of God in salvation, but it was related to a specific call to be priest of the nations. They misinterpreted that and said, well... We're closer to God, and God is more generous with us. They knew that they were sinners, they repented, but they didn't see themselves as depraved the way the Gentiles and the Greeks and the barbarians were. And so what Paul is going to do now in chapters 2 and 3 is he's going to argue that the Jews are just as bad as everybody else. Now you say, gosh, that's kind of interesting, but you know what's that got to do with us? Well, it has to do with any group of Christians who think they're better than everybody else. We've got all five points. All five. We're not four-point Calvinists. We're five-point Calvinists. And we got infant baptism. In fact, we've got paedo-communion. And we understand theocracy and the law. Plus, we're post-millennialists. That makes us better than everybody else. No, it just means that we're called to serve all the other churches, to serve all the other Christians, by being as charitable and kind and patient as Jesus was in persuading them. okay, And they won't care how much you know until they know how much you care, as you know. So, Romans 2 is talking to any group of Christians who think that they are blessed possessors of a better form of religion. Because the Jews and the special things that were in the law, which Paul calls the works of the law, were not given to them to make them second-stage Christians, to give them a second blessing, so that they spoke in tongues, or they were Calvinists, or they had apostolic succession, or whatever. No, it was given so that they could be servants to all the rest, and they were misinterpreting that. So now let's read. I'm going to read chapter 2 in sections and just comment on it as we go. Therefore, Paul says, you are without excuse every man who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. You who judge practice the same things. Now, how did we get to this? All of a sudden, he's talking about somebody who passes judgment. And he says, you're in trouble because you condemn other people, but you do the same things. Who's he talking about here? Well, if we go over to verse 17, we see that he's really talking about a Jew. Sometimes this is the self-righteous pagan in people's minds, but really in context, he's talking about a Jewish person like he himself was before his conversion who thinks that he's better than everybody else. And he says, you pass judgment on the Gentiles. You agree with all this stuff I just said. Oh, Paul says these people hate God and they worship creepy crawlies and they're queers and they're full of depravity. And the Jewish guy is saying, yeah, that's right, that's what they're like. And Paul says, hey, you do the same things. Who are you to pass judgment? You know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose this, O man, O Jew, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Well, in a sense, the Jews did think that. They thought God was more lenient with them. God was going to punish the Gentiles for all of their sins, but God was going to be more gracious to the Jews because of his covenant. Well, Paul says that's not true. As far as salvation is concerned, it doesn't have anything to do with whether you're Jew or Gentile. As far as salvation is concerned, it never had anything to do with whether you were Jew or a Gentile. And he's going to argue this in chapter 4. Being a Jew had nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. It had to do with whether you had the special calling to be a priest to the nation. Verses 4 to 6. Do you Jews think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He says, yeah, it's true. God has been long-suffering with you Jews. See, Jews rebelled. See, the Jews were looking back at their own history. And they said, gee, we made a golden calf in the wilderness, and God killed a lot of us, but He didn't forsake us utterly. And then... We rebelled in the days of the kings. We went into exile, but God brought us back. So God is lenient to us and nice to us. And He's patient with us and He's forbearing with us much more than He is with the Gentiles. And Paul says that's just not so. He's been that way with everybody. And he says, don't trust in the patience and forbearance of God. Don't think that because God had not judged you yet, you can coast. Because you're about to coast into a brick wall. Verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. As God has been long-suffering with you, but all you're doing is you're storing up wrath. Now, Jesus has already talked about this business of storing up wrath. He says that the wrath for all the murderers from Abel down to Zechariah is going to be dumped on Jerusalem in A.D. 70. He says there is an accumulation of wrath And the bill is coming due in the spring of A.D. 70. Actually, in the years immediately preceding that when the Romans come. And Paul is saying something very similar here. He says, God has been kind and he has held off his judgments. But instead of repenting, you guys are storing up wrath. And the bill is coming due. That's still true today, of course. The bill comes due the day you die. As long as you're alive... It's the day of grace. I don't care what you've done. I was at a church recently where the pastor told me they had a man in their church who was a good man. He'd been in the church for a while and was doing good stuff in the church. And one day he went back to another state and turned himself in. He was wanted in that state. He'd been convicted of an extremely serious crime. And he'd been in their church under an assumed name. They didn't even know his name right. But he finally got convicted and went back. And they didn't even know that he had committed such horrible crimes and was supposed to be sent off to prison. And he had fled. Well, that's what's coming. You know, one day it comes. But, you know, that man would have gone to hell except that he wasn't dead yet. And God gave him time and he took the time to repent. And finally, when the gospel really got out on him, he went back and turned himself in and went to serve his time in prison. Well... As long as you're still alive, it doesn't matter what you've done. God has given you another chance. But the day you die, that's the end of all the chances. Now, he says in verses 6 and following, God will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, God gives them eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, God gives them wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek because there is no partiality with God. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying, look, God is just as generous to the Gentiles as He is to the Jews. You've got some Gentile out there in China who doesn't know much, but for some reason, he is pursuing glory and honor and eternal life. In terms of what God has given him to know, the Holy Spirit is working with him and he's being faithful. And Paul says, that person will be rewarded with eternal life. And a Jew who has the law and knows a whole lot more, if he pursues glory and honor and immortality, he will be rewarded with eternal life. But if a Gentile living out in China or Australia who doesn't know much of anything... Sins against the light that God gives him, then he's going to be judged. And if the Jew who has so much more information sins against God, he'll be judged. And he goes on and says the same thing again in verses 12 to 16. All who sin without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law are justified. Just being a Jew isn't going to save you. You have to do what the law says. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by instinct the things that are in the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. That is, God's law works out of their heart to themselves. In that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending themselves on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, there's two ways to take this. Some have said that this is all theoretical. What Paul is saying is that if there ever was a Gentile in an African village who didn't know anything, but whose heart was turned and who pursued glory and honor, God would save that person. But as a matter of fact, there's nobody like that because the only way you can be saved is to hear the special revelation. So there's nobody in that category, and this is just theoretical. I don't think that'll stand. I think that is imposing something on the text that's not here. Plus, I think God is more generous than that. We don't know what happens to people in pagan cultures who never hear. The Bible doesn't talk about people going to hell except those who have heard and rejected. If you look in the Gospels, the people that Jesus threatens with hell are people who knew a whole lot about the truth, who were in the people of God, and who turned against Christ and God. They're apostates. The Bible doesn't threaten eternal judgment to people who don't know anything at all, necessarily. If you look at the Old Testament, you find that God says, I am the God of the stranger and the widow and the helpless. God indicates that He is the God of babies who die in infancy, of aborted children. We say, elect children dying in infancy. Well, the Bible gives us more encouragement than that. B.B. Warfield, in his essay, says the Bible encourages us to believe that God generously saves Those who don't know any better. Those that are damned are those who rebel against more light. Now, I don't know what God does with the heathen. But I know what Paul says here. He certainly seems to indicate that there are some people who are outside the information that we would think of, you know, revelation. Outside the law. Who instinctively do the things that are the law. And who seek after God's glory in terms of whatever dark understanding they have of it. And God counts that as something. Because in reality, the Holy Spirit is working with them. And in reality, Jesus died for them. They just don't have much information about it. Now, how does that work? Well, I think it works because of the Noahic covenant. Everybody in the world is descended from Noah. And the covenant that God made with Noah is a salvation covenant. And I think the Noahic Covenant is the covenant under which Gentiles could be saved. Noah offered sacrifice and God made peace with him. And so what did Melchizedek know? How was Melchizedek saved? How were people saved before Abraham came on the scene? Through the Noahic Covenant. And even after God called Abraham to be a priest of the nations, what about the Gentiles who were not part of Abraham's family? How were they saved? Under the Noahic Covenant. Now, I don't know how much information is circulating around the ancient world. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it may have been that there were God-fearing Gentiles maintained the truth of Noah to some extent in China and Australia and in Latin America back a 1000 B.C. We don't know. But we do know that it's entirely possible that enough of the truth was passed down from the Noahic Covenant for Gentiles to be saved. All Paul is saying is that it seems like God will count the faithfulness of the Gentile if he lives according to what he knows, what God has seen to give him. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom less is given, less is required. And he says God will count that and save whether you're under the law and you know all the stuff that's in the Old Testament or whether you're outside of the law and you've got a lot of confusion and there's a lot you don't know if you're being faithful. Now, some people say, well, if that's the case, then why should we take the gospel to the heathen? Maybe a lot of them are already being saved because they're living according to the light God has given them. Well, I don't know. seems like the light gets dimmer and dimmer as the centuries go by, and God expects people to hear the truth and the gospel to go places. Well, let's assume that there are people in tribes in Borneo who never heard the word, and yet some of them are being faithful and they're going to get to go to heaven. Why do we take the gospel out? Is it because the lost are perishing? No, that is not why. The gospel is not that God saves sinners. The gospel is that Jesus is King of Kings and the world has changed. And that's the message we're taking out. We're taking out the word that God has brought history to climax, that the Father has sent the Son to die. That's the good word that we're taking out to these pagans. And some of them may say, well, you know, and missionaries tell stories like this, and you never know what to make out of it. Sometimes the missionaries will say, well, a guy came up to me and said, you know, we always knew that the God of heaven would send us somebody to explain to us stuff like this. You think, well, gee, they were looking for something. I don't know. But I know that the motivation for world witness is not primarily because we know for a fact that everybody in heathendom is going to die and go to hell. We don't know that for a fact. What we do know is Jesus is king. And they need to hear that. I'll tell you something else. In another century or so, everybody in the world will have heard the gospel. But Jesus isn't coming back for about 100,000 years. So for most of human history, people will be operating in terms of knowledge of the gospel. And we're still just living in the early preliminary phase of history. And if God overlooks people in their ignorance at this stage in history, it won't be this way for the next 100,000 years. It says that God is going to show His faithfulness to thousands of generations, right? The second commandment says, showing loving kindness to thousands of generations of those who love me. 1,000 generations is 40,000 years. So thousands of generations is 100,000, 200,000 years. Jesus isn't coming back till we've explored the asteroids and done a lot of other things. We're still living in the very early stages of human history here. That's what I believe. And if you don't believe that, you're wrong. <laughs> hey, I have a witness. Now, Paul says that these Jews are despising the riches of his kindness and they're being stubborn and impenitent. He's not telling us exactly at this point what they're being stubborn and impenitent about. But what it is is their closed ethnic attitude. And the refusal to see that they were given special gifts, not so that they could be blessed possessors, but so they could give those gifts away. The Jews were supposed to live in mission. They were supposed to serve the nations round about. They were supposed to pray for the nations round about. And that's why every time you see a covenant made in the Old Testament, it has a Gentile sponsor. What happens when the Abrahamic covenant is made? Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine and sponsors the covenant. He wants Abraham to get in there and build those altars and start ministering. The Gentiles sponsor the Jews. And what happens when the Mosaic covenant is made? Who comes to sponsor? Jethro. And who sponsors the Davidic Covenant? Hiram of Tyre. Does all this great stuff for David and then he helps build the temple. Who sponsors the Restoration Covenant? Cyrus and Darius. Get back there and get that temple built and pray for us. Gentiles always sponsor the Jews. But the sin of the Jews was not to do their missionary work. Just like Jonah. God says to Jonah, hey... It's time to go save the Ninevites. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that. Well, that's exactly the problem. Well, they were supposed to be living in mission. They were supposed to be praying for all the nations of the world. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. They offered 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world. But they didn't understand that. And they began to think, God has been good to us. Praise the Lord. We're grateful to God because He saved us. And now, here we are and we've got all this truth. And they weren't sacrificing to get that out to everybody else. They weren't doing the evangelistic work. That's their sin. And they viewed the law as kind of a boundary to keep them in and keep the others out. That is going to be the issue here. But the Paul's major issue is everybody's under the same judgment and the only way anybody is saved, whether Jew or Gentile, is through faithfulness. And then later on in Romans, he's going to expand that point. He's going to get more specific about how that works. Now verse 17 and following. He says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the childish, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And then he brings some indictments. Now, what his point is going to be is not that all Jews do these things, but that some Jews who are in the covenant and have all these benefits do these things that he's about to talk about, which shows that being a Jew doesn't make you any better than anybody else. you got good Jews and bad Jews. you got good Gentiles and bad Gentiles. He's arguing this in detail. Now listen to what he says. Verse 21b. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who despise idols, do you rob temples? Now here are three things. And the sin he's pointing to is the sin of what? Hypocrisy. The same thing Jesus dealt with. He says, many of the Jews, in fact, so many that it's just characteristic. Everybody knows that a lot of you people are like this. First of all, you say, you should not steal. But do you steal? All three of these sins come from the book of Malachi. In fact, this entire passage is taken from Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And in Malachi, God indicts the Jews for incipient Phariseeism. He indicts them for claiming to be possessors of the law, but breaking it. When He says, when you preach that one should not steal, do you steal? The reference is to tithes and to offerings. God says in Malachi, you are robbing Me. And you say, how have I robbed you? Well, you've robbed me by not bringing tithes and offerings. You have robbed me. How have we robbed you? By bringing lame and damaged animals for sacrifice instead of good, unblemished animals for sacrifice. That's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 3, verse 5. Then he says, You who say one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? God says in Malachi, You have offended me. How have we offended you? You have offended me because your wife's tears rise to me from my altar. Because you have put aside the wife of your youth and gone after a cute young pagan thing. See, all these Jews that had midlife crises, and they'd all gone out and gotten a red sports car and taken up with some pagan girl in the college campus half their age. And Malachi indicts them for it. Well, the Jews were committing a lot of adultery. The story of the woman taking an adultery shows that. Those Pharisees knew exactly where to find that woman. And when they brought her to Jesus, you notice they didn't bring the man. And when Jesus says, those of you who haven't done this kind of thing can cast the first stone, they all went away. Guess what that means? There was a lot of adultery floating around. You know, we think of hypocrisy as the kind of hypocrisy that most of us wrestle with. You know, I'm not a good enough Christian. You know, I feel this way sometimes. Probably should feel this way all the time. Sometimes I feel like I ought not to be getting up here and teaching because I've got problems in my life. That is not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about hypocrisy. The hypocrisy in the New Testament was blatant, blatant sin. You know, in our fairly good churches we don't see this, but I know a situation in Jackson, Mississippi where a leading elder on the session of one of the most conservative churches in town turned out to have a woman on the other side of town and he was maintaining her in an apartment. And when he was finally caught in it, he said, Well, you can't judge me. Who are you to judge me? You think that's blatant. How can somebody do that? Something so blatant. But boy, people can. And still claim to be Christians. They were robbing widows. Committing adultery, visiting harlots, all this stuff, blatant stuff. And Paul says, hey, you know as well as I do, there are a lot of Jews out there doing just this kind of blatant stuff. Finally, he says, you who detest idols, do you rob temples? Could mean one of two things. It could mean, again, the idea of robbing God. Or it could mean that they would go around to the shrines to the false gods and take the food that had been left there as sacrifices because these shrines were all empty. People would come and leave food there and other gifts for their gods, and, and the Jews would go around and collect the stuff that was there. I mean, why not? It was just sitting there waiting for somebody to take it. But Paul's point is, if you detest idols so much, why are you even bothering to do that? And I think it's more likely because of the context in Malachi that he's talking about robbing God's temple. Well, finally, he summarizes it, and he says, You boast in the law, but through your breaking the law, you dishonor God. And the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 24. Now that's really kind of the climax here. You see, the whole mission of the Jews was to cause God's name to ascend among the Gentiles. But instead, they were causing God's name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. They had perverted the true meaning of being a Jew. They had perverted and inverted the true meaning of the covenant. It's not that they were trusting in good works for salvation. The Jews in Jesus' day that Paul is talking about did not trust in good works for salvation. That is not the issue. They believed that they were saved by grace alone. And God made a covenant with them that if He hadn't, they'd all be going to hell. They knew that they were wicked sinners. They talked about it a lot. Now, Jesus said that a lot of them talked the talk and didn't walk the walk, and He contrasts the Pharisee with the publican. But they talked about it. That was not the problem. The problem was they thought that being a Jew and being saved by grace, they were secure and that they were in better shape than everybody else. That was wrong. And the problem was they were called to be missionaries and they were just the reverse. They were making God's name be blasphemed among the Gentiles. And he's going to get to this argument as we go. Then he says in verse 25-29, Circumcision is of value if you practice the law. That is, if you're a member of the priestly people by circumcision, then if you do the law, that's good. But if you're a transgressor of the law, then your circumcision is counteracted. You've lost your priestly status. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keep the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? If a God-fearing Gentile obeys God, isn't that count as circumcision? He's really ministering to God and doing good mission work. And God's name will be glorified among the nations because of Him. So de facto, He's circumcised. He's being a better priest than many of the Israelites are being. Verse 27, And will not he who is physically uncircumcised if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? Who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. Ooh, now he's saying that the God-fearing Gentile may be more righteous and be in a position to judge the Jew. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The true meaning of the law, he says, is Spiritual trust in God, not necessarily ritual observances. And the Old Testament has said the same thing. God has said, I care nothing for your sacrifices. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. What is all this sacrifice to me if you don't obey? Now then, he continues in chapter 3, the same argument. And we've got a chapter break here in our Bibles, but the argument goes and continues on, so we've got to keep going. What advantage has the Jew then? Well, based on what Paul has said, what difference does it make to be a Jew? Why bother? You know, why not just be a Gentile? If you're saved the same way and you're judged the same way, then what advantage has the Jew? Well, Paul says, what benefit is circumcision? Well, it's great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, that's as far as he gets here. Later on in chapter 9, when he picks this discussion back up, he will list other things that make it Special to have been a Jew. Which is the same way as saying what advantage is it to have been baptized as a baby and grown up in the church. But notice what he says here. What is it that was the special advantage of the Jew? Is it that they had the oracles of God so that they could read the Bible? Or was it that they were entrusted with the oracles of God? What does it mean to be entrusted it means that they had the oracles of God on behalf of somebody else. They were given the Word so that they could give the Word to others. They were entrusted with the Word so that they could be in mission. They were called to priestly service. And that's what they weren't doing. They thought that it meant that they were specially close to God. And Paul's whole argument is, no, you are not saved by being in a group. You're saved by faith. And that's the argument here in Romans. You are not saved by being in a group. You're saved by faith. Verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? No. As a matter of fact, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true and every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy works and mightest prevail when people challenge you. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Now, what's his argument here? His argument is, remember that righteousness means covenant faithfulness. Okay? That God is loyal to us. It doesn't mean primarily the idea of measuring up to a standard. It means that God is loyal to us. And he says, if they sin, will God stop being loyal? Will God break it off? And he answers, no, that's not what God did. Even though they sin, God continued to be faithful to them. He says, God will remain true even though all men are liars. I mean, Then he says, if our unrighteousness, if us breaking the covenant, demonstrates God's faithfulness in keeping the covenant, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? Now this is the heart of the problem Paul is wrestling with in Romans. It is called... For those of you who want to hear the word, a theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, which means a justification of God. Paul in Romans is not concerned to justify us. Jesus did that on the cross. Paul in Romans is, well, that's not really a parallel answer, but at any rate, he mentions that. But the point of Romans is to justify God, because it looks like God is contradicting himself. God's righteousness is. His faithfulness is revealed by our sin. God would be faithful and loyal to Adam and Eve if they'd never sinned. But once they sinned and God continues to be faithful and loyal to them, that really shows what God is made of. That God is faithful and loyal even when His children rebel against Him. Now the problem is, if that's true, then how can God show wrath? After all, our sin only causes him to be more faithful. The more we sin, the more faithful he is. Even though we sin, he's faithful. Even though we murder, he's faithful. Even though we rape and pillage, he's faithful. Even though we, you know, murder thousands of people, he's faithful. How can that be? In that case, well, then there'll never be a day of wrath because God will just keep on being faithful forever and loving the wicked forever. Because He's faithful to us even when we sin. So Paul says, now here's this problem. And we're going to be sorting this one out in Romans. How can God be faithful? Our sins show that He is faithful no matter what. But then, if that's true, then it's contradictory for God to bring wrath. And Paul doesn't give an answer here. He says, may it never be. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? He says, we know that God is going to judge the world. So we've got two things in tension. A, we know that God is faithful to us even though we sin, so He's not judging us. And B, we know that God is going to judge the world. Now, it looks like these are in contradiction to each other, so how do we resolve this contradiction? Well, that's what the next several chapters of Romans are about. The answer is, God is going to show wrath too, and the explanation that He gets to, this explanation of how it fits together is going to have to wait till later on in Romans But the answer basically is that God's forbearance and patience ends with our death. Once you die, well, after that, the judgment. So, God is faithful to us in spite of our sins as long as we're alive. But when we die, that's it. Is God faithful to Adolf Hitler? Yeah. As long as Hitler was alive. Even down there in the bunker, God was being faithful. God was being righteous to him. God was overlooking his sin. God was giving him one more chance. God was showing covenant loyalty to Adolf Hitler. And then Hitler died. And that was the end of that. Then he went under wrath. That's the basic answer. Then he's got another dilemma here. Verses 7 and 8. If through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, then why am I also judged as a sinner? And why not, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So here's the second problem. God is righteous and faithful and To us, even when we're sinners. And He's righteous and faithful and covenantly loyal and blesses saints as well. He blesses the saints. He's righteous and loyal to the saints. And He blesses the wicked. And He's righteous and loyal to the wicked. So, why not sin? I mean, why be a saint? Go ahead and do what you want. Because God is going to be loyal and faithful to you anyway. Now, Paul's answer to the question is, anybody who thinks this is stupid, Basically, that's his answer. Their condemnation is just. In other words, he says, I'm going to get to this later on, but for starters, if you think this way, you are really dumb. In fact, you deserve to be condemned. The explanation has to wait until he's finished laying some things out. But the explanation is basically the same thing. God's forbearance is designed to lead us to repentance. And if we don't repent, then eventually we're going to die and suffer His wrath. So, yep, it's true. As we look at this world... We see saints and we see sinners and they're both getting about the same amount of blessing and both getting about the same amount of spanking and God is being faithful to both of them. But when you die, it's going to be sorting out time. Now that's what he's laying at. Now we got to finish this. we got to finish this and talk about bad breath. Here in verses 9 to 20. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. What he's saying is the distinction between Jew and Greek didn't have anything to do with salvation. Whether you're saved or not, didn't matter about being Jews and Greeks. What it had to do with, was with your calling. The Jews were called to be priests of the nations. The Greeks were called to guard the Jews. And the Gentiles and the barbarians were called to just live faithful lives. Okay? So the Jews and the Greeks both had special callings. The Jews to be priests of the nations. The Greeks to be a doberman to protect the Jews. But that didn't have anything to do with salvation. They were all under sin. And then he quotes seven passages from the Old Testament to show that Jews are under sin because these were all the Jewish Scriptures. And if the Jews are under sin, then everybody else is as well. So, verses 10 to 18. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So everybody's going to go to hell. Well, no. God has been saving people right along. But the point is, apart from God's grace, nobody gets saved. And God's grace is given to Greeks and Gentiles and barbarians as well as Jews. Then he describes this bad breath scene here. Their throat is an open grave. Have you ever smelled a dead body? That's what he says is down at the bottom of their throat. And so it is bad breath city. Death breath is what he's talking about here. An open grave leading up into the throat and then their tongues. They keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So it just kind of boils up. There is a dead body. There's a corpse in your heart. Your heart is dead. It's rotten. And that comes up into all the stuff you say. And that has to do with worship. And then, the Godward relationship of worship, then he talks about the manward relationship. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they refuse to acknowledge. And then he sums it up by saying there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the indictment. Our worship is no good because it's coming out of a dead heart, and our feet are swift to shed blood. Goes back to Adam and Eve, goes back to Cain and Abel. Feet swift to shed blood. Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Abel and Cain are talking in the field. Abel gets mad and kills him right there, swiftly, and blows off the handle. Finally, he says this in verses 19 to 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are inside the law. Now, your version may not have the word inside there, but that's what it needs to be. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are inside the law. The law is like a circle or a sphere, and people are inside of it or outside of it. What the law says, it says to those who are inside the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, both of these verses are talking about the law in a specific dimension. Now, the law is what's given at Mount Sinai. And it includes the last half of Exodus and all of Leviticus and part of Numbers. And then by extension, Deuteronomy and really the whole Old Testament. But the law has several dimensions to it. And the dimension of the law that creates a circle is the dimension of separation laws, ceremonial laws of separation, which are the laws that set a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. That is what he's talking about. The works of the law, he's not talking about obeying the Ten Commandments. He's talking about not eating unclean meat, obeying the laws of leprosy, childbearing, and certain other laws. Not planting a field of mixed seed. Other laws that applied only to the Jews and that were given for the purpose of setting up a boundary wall between Jew and Gentile. Setting up a different circle. Why is it that these laws, he says, or this aspect of the law, gives the knowledge of sin? Now we're so used to thinking, and it's also, it's true that the Ten Commandments can give a knowledge of sin. You see, Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin except the law said don't covet. But the purpose of the Ten Commandments was not to give knowledge of sin. That's not why God gave the Ten Commandments. He gave the Ten Commandments to teach Israel how to live. But he gave these ceremonial laws to teach about sin and death. If a dead animal dies inside your house, what it's lying on is unclean and you have to wash it because death spreads to it. If you give birth to a baby, you're unclean, and the baby's unclean, and it has to be washed. Death, 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 death. All over those laws of uncleanness. Plus, the sacrificial system. you got to kill an animal. you got to put your hands on it. These laws were given to remind them of sin, to heighten their sense of sinfulness. You're going about your business and one day you see a white spot on your arm. Oh no! If this is leprosy, I'm gonna to have to move outside the walls of the city. You go and see the priest, and the priest says, Well, it looks like it's not really under the skin, but I don't know. We're gonna have to shut you up for a week and take another look. The priest comes back, come back in a week, come back in a week and it started to spread. The priest says, Yeah, I'm afraid. You have to move outside the city walls. You can't go to work anymore. Death. Sin, death, sin, those laws taught sin. That's their purpose. The other laws taught sin by reflex. You know, if you break the Ten Commandments, then the law reminds you that you did wrong. But that's not the primary purpose of the Ten Commandments. But the primary, in fact, the only purpose of the laws of separation was to teach sin. And so he says those laws were never given to justify. They were given to condemn. They were given to show forth death and sin. Now that's what's amazing. Because these boundary laws were the laws the Jews were thinking were most important. They had multiplied. You remember that Peter, when God calls him to go to visit Cornelius, he says, well, I can't go inside a Gentile house. Well, the law doesn't say you can't go inside a Gentile house. It's perfectly okay under the law to go inside a Gentile house. But the Jews had multiplied these boundaries. So there were all kinds of boundaries between them and the Gentiles. And Paul says, all you've done is multiply death and sin. Because that aspect of the law was designed to show you death and sin. <laughs> and by multiplying it, you just multiply condemnation. Now, we'll get more on this as we go. But that's the bottom line here. Those works, the ceremonial works of the law, the boundary works, can only condemn and the works of the law, no flesh can be justified, and that aspect of the law provides a knowledge of sin. So in summary, what we've done tonight. First place, Paul says, everybody's a sinner. And the Jew comes along and says, well, it's true everybody's a sinner, but they're worse than we are. And Paul says, nope, the Jews have no special standing as regards salvation. Their call was to service and mission. But that didn't mean that they had any special inside track with God as far as salvation is concerned, and therefore, everybody's a sinner. You hear that? None righteous, not even one. And so now, Paul says, we have to see how God's faithfulness, his righteousness, is reconciled with the coming day of judgment and with our sinfulness.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.